All right, well, this is it. We have come to the end of our Seven Deadly Sin series where we've been trying to do what Hebrews 12.1 exhorts us to do. Uh, Hebrews 12.1 has been our, our theme verse over the last seven weeks, and uh, I've encouraged us to memorize it. I don't know if any of you have actually done that, but this is the last chance we have to demonstrate that we've memorized it together. So I'm not going to put it up on the screen, and I'm, I'm going to show that I know it too, okay? And uh, if you can say it with me, say it with me. So, <clears throat> therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That was pretty good, actually. I heard some of you saying it. Good job, everybody. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's applaud. <laughs> Throwing off our sin is not an easy thing to do, is it? Uh, but making an effort to do that is part of the life that God calls us to. And he doesn't call us to do it because he's trying to get us to earn his love or because he wants us to try and earn our place in heaven or anything like that. It's, it's not that. He calls us to that because it is the best way to live. And uh, he, calls it, he calls us to it because he has a race for us to run and he wants us to run it to the best of our ability. Uh, so far, we've looked at uh, six attitudes or impulses that keep us from running that race. So we've looked at envy, wrath, sloth, gluttony, lust, and greed. And so that leaves us with the last one, which some people refer to as the granddaddy of all sins, uh, the sin of pride. Now, what is the sin of pride exactly? I think it's very important that we talk about that because what we talk about when we talk about pride is sometimes a good thing. Uh, for example, say you hire some people to paint your house and they just do a terrible job. They don't scrape off all the old paint before putting on new paint. They get paint on the windows. They take like two years to do it. They take three hour lunch breaks. You might say, I wish they took more pride in their work. And what you would mean by that is, I wish they cared more about how their work reflects on them. And you would be right in wishing that, right? It would be good if they took more pride in their work. Or here's another example. Uh, say you know someone who has a habit of getting really drunk and then doing things that most of us would be ashamed or embarrassed to be seen doing. Uh, you might say, this person has no pride. And the kind of pride you have in mind is something that could really benefit this person because it's the kind of pride that helps to lead to moderation and self-control. The Bible itself actually speaks positively about pride sometimes. Uh, you might remember that in the first sermon in this series, we looked at Galatians 6.4 uh, when we talked about envy. Galatians 6.4 says, each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. So notice there, uh, the pride that's being talked about is being talked about positively. 
So what are we talking about exactly when we talk about this positive form of pride? That's where I want to start, acknowledging the, the, the good kind of pride. Well, one thing that we're talking about is self-respect. Self-respect. It is good for us to have self-respect. Regardless of what other people have said to us, we are not worthless. We are not unlovable. Uh, we should never see ourselves as worthy of another person's abuse or bigotry. Instead, we should see ourselves the way the Bible describes us. And I have three points I want to make about the way the Bible describes us that I really think are important to, to hold on to. First one, uh, we are created by God in his image. Created by God in his image. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, it means that we have been specially made to represent God to the rest of creation. Now, if you found out that tomorrow you were going to become the representative of a company, or let's say you're in a particular program in your university and you, you're being called now to be the representative of that program, or a representative of a country or of an army, you would probably feel the weight of that. And you'd be like, wow, that's a huge responsibility. I feel significant that I'm being asked to represent this thing. But all of us are called to represent something far more important than any of those things. We're called to represent the creator of the universe to the rest of creation. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. Secondly, the Bible says that we are loved by God. And that's kind of a flimsy way of putting it. We're loved by God. It's much more intense than that. We are loved to a depth and degree that is impossible to even comprehend. Uh, God loves us so much that he was willing to give his earthly life to save us. And uh, because of his love, we have been adopted into God's family as his sons and daughters. You might say that we have been invited to the dinner table of the Most High. And as uh, sons and daughters in God's family, we are the rightful inheritors of all the blessings that he has to offer, which are the best kind of blessings and the ones that last eternally. And then three, the Bible says that we are, uh, if we have invited Christ into our lives, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. I talked about this a little bit when we talked about gluttony, that we're supposed to see these bodies that we live in uh, as places where the Holy Spirit resides, homes for the Holy Spirit. And God has chosen to work through these bodies to bless the world. Now, if we really believe that these things are true, it should make us stand up a little straighter, right? It should make us hold our heads up high. Uh, we should have healthy self-respect, and this is the kind of self-respect that is a good, good kind of pride, right? It's a form of pride that says, I am not an accident, I am not worthless, I am not unloved. But the good kind of pride, it's not just self-respect, there's, there's another way of putting it. Good kind of pride is feeling satisfied when we've done something to the best of our ability. Feeling satisfied when we've done something to the best of our ability. You know, if we do the best that we can on an assignment for school or on a work project, 
or even on a ministry-related task, it's healthy for us to feel some satisfaction in that. Remember, again, Galatians 6.4, uh, what it said. It says that we should carry our own load. <clears throat> in other words, that means that we should, uh, we should do our part in the community to serve the community and to participate and help make things happen. Carry our own load. And as we do that to the best of our ability, we should take pride in ourselves, right? Then he can take pride in himself, it says. Uh, but there's a very important note there, which is that when we do this, we should take pride without comparing ourselves to anybody else. That's very important. Um, one of the things that distinguishes the bad kind of pride from the good kind of pride is that the bad kind of pride is all about feeling superior because you're looking down on somebody. It's all about comparison. But the good kind of pride takes pride in our actions without comparing ourselves to other people. All right, so that's the good kind of pride. But how do we define the sinful version of pride? Why is it one of the seven deadly sins? Well, the sinful kind of pride, it's not about healthy self-respect. It's not about a sense of satisfaction and a job well done. Uh, what it is, is it's something that tends to have three components to it. And the first one is an obsession with the self. An obsession with self. It's very appropriate that in this picture of the word pride, the word I is exaggerated. It's so big. Because when we have the sinful form of pride, it's all I, 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 me, me, me. That's where our mind is all the time. We see ourselves as the center of the universe. Uh, and we have a hard time really caring about other people. We have a hard time listening to other people. In fact, I would say that's probably one, a, a good way of gauging our selfishness is if somebody else is talking and the subject is not you, uh, are you able to pay attention? Uh, I heard <laughs> that in uh, one biography about former President Lyndon B. Johnson, uh, it said that at dinner parties, he could be very lively and talkative, but only if the subject of conversation was him. Uh, as soon as the conversation went away from him, he would pretend to fall asleep. And, uh, and, that, and, and I say we can be confident he pretended to fall asleep because when the conversation went back to him, he perked back up. So uh, it reminds me of a Garfield comic. Hopefully I'm remembering this correctly where Garfield is on a date with a girl cat, and uh, he says, but I've talked enough about myself. Now you talk about me. <laughs> I'm sure many of us know somebody who's self-obsessed like that, and maybe we ourselves struggle with that kind of self-obsession. And that preoccupation with the self is one of the foremost symptoms of sinful pride. Second uh, symptom of pride is an attitude of superiority. Uh, this is the attitude that says, I'm better than you. I'm more valuable than you. Uh, it's also the attitude that says, I can't associate with those people. Now, I want us to notice that this attitude runs deeper than simply recognizing or being aware of the fact that we're better at someone at something. Um, Misha is our drummer on the worship team. He plays drums. He's a very good drummer. I cannot play drums at all. 
Now, it would not be prideful of Misha to recognize that he's a better drummer than me. Right? That, that is not pride. But it would be prideful if Misha thought, well, I'm a better person than Ryan, because I can play the drums. Right? And, and that's the difference when it comes to this attitude of, of superiority. Uh, pride is the attitude that says, I matter more than you. And of course, it's also the attitude that says, I want to broadcast my, my gifts and abilities to the world in a way that makes everybody notice and pay attention to them. And what we need to realize is that through, throughout Scripture, this attitude of superiority is something that we are told to turn from. Over and over again, we're told this. One great example is in Philippians chapter 2. If you do want to follow along in your own Bible, this is a good verse to turn to because we're going to look at it a couple times this morning. But Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now what does Paul mean when he says, consider others better than yourselves? Does that mean that we should consider everybody else to be more skilled, uh, more valuable, more virtuous? Well, I don't think so. What, what Paul is saying is that we should consider others' interests more than we consider our own. You know, our default mode of thinking is to assume that my interests are superior, uh, my, my way of doing things is superior, but this is calling us to break out of that default human mode and to honor one another by giving our superior concern to each other rather than just ourselves. Uh, and then a final part of bad pride, number three, is a need for others to validate our self-concept. So we think we're superior, we're obsessed with ourselves, and we're not content just to live in our own little bubble of selfishness and egotism. We want everybody else to inhabit that same bubble as well. And one of the things that this does, this need to have everyone else validate us, is it makes us very prone to anger. Uh, because the reality is most people are not going to put you at the center of their universe. And so when they don't, you have, you're very short-tempered and you have a tendency to just erupt. And this leads to wrath, which is another one of the seven deadly sins uh, that we talked about. Very prideful people are almost always very angry people too. Those two things go together. We cannot tolerate criticism when we're very prideful. So those are three symptoms of sinful pride, and I think it goes without saying that sinful pride is one of the most destructive forces in the world. Uh, pride is like a poison to any community. It's toxic. It destroys families. It destroys friendships. It destroys entire churches. It motivates bullies and political tyrants. It's the fuel behind racism. I think a good syn synonym for pride is relationship killer. Relationship killer. You know, have you ever had an argument with someone, and then you thought back on it, and you thought, yeah, I really shouldn't have said that stuff. I did lose my temper. Uh, I did say things intentionally to wound this other person. And you've thought of all this, you realize that, that this is true, but you haven't said sorry. 
You haven't gone and said, yep, here's what I did here, and I, I, I'm sorry, I have no excuse. What is the thing that keeps you from doing that? It's pride. And it's incredibly powerful force. The Bible actually implies that pride is a root of all of the world's problems. If we go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, there is, of course, the story of Adam and Eve. And uh, most of you probably know the story. God creates Adam and Eve, creates them in his image to be his image bearers, and he places them in a garden. And this garden has lots of good food to eat, lots of great things to enjoy. But he just has one rule for them. He says, do not eat from this one tree, which is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it. If you do, you will die. And then the devil, who is represented by a serpent, comes and persuades Eve to eat from that, that forbidden tree. Now, why is the serpent able to persuade Eve? Well, one of the reasons is because he appeals to her pride. Right? He appeals to her desire to be her own god. The serpent says that God doesn't want her to eat from the tree because, and this is from Genesis 3-5, God doesn't want you to eat from the tree because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, Eve, you know why God doesn't want you to eat from this tree? It's, it's because he knows that if you eat from it, you're going to be just like him. And he doesn't want you to be as awesome and as powerful as he is. He doesn't want you to become his equal. That's why he doesn't want to eat you to eat from it. Not because he's trying to protect you. Not because he doesn't want you to die. It's because he doesn't want you to become his equal. And there's something about that that's very persuasive for Eve. You know, I have to imagine that she, she thought, well, why should God get to be in charge? Why should he get to tell me what to do? I want to be in charge. I want to be the judge of what's right and wrong. I want to be my own God. And, and then we're told that that's what Eve does. She decides to be her own God by being her own judge of good and evil. And she eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see why that tree is called the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because it represents the fact that when Eve chooses to eat from it, she is saying, I am the one who knows what is good and evil. I'm the one that knows what's right and wrong, not God. And so this is what the next verse says. Uh, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So what Eve did here was she said, okay, I am going to be the judge, not God, of whether I eat from this tree. Let's look at it. Oh, mm, well, it looks nice. It's a pretty tree. You know? Food looks like it would be tasty. And I, I want wisdom. And supposedly I'm going to get wisdom if I eat from this tree. So, yeah, okay, I judge that I will eat from it. Forget what God says. And so we know the story, right? She eats from the tree. Adam does too. And the consequences are terrible. Uh, the, basically, the harmony of creation is destroyed. Right? Now it's going to take painful labor to get food up from out of the ground. Uh, childbearing is going to be painful. Death is going to be an, an inevitable part of life. And there's a rupture in the relationship between God and human beings. 
and a rupture in the relationship between human beings themselves. Adam and Eve are now at odds with each other. So these are terrible consequences. Right? And they're consequences that all of us have experienced in some way. And this story shows us that these consequences that we experience, they have a root in human pride, in this desire to be our own gods. If Adam and Eve had let God be God, then these consequences wouldn't have happened. So pride messed things up then, and pride messes up things now. And just like for Adam and Eve, pride fractures our relationship with God, and it fractures our relationships with each other. So, how can we find freedom? That's the question that we've asked at the end of every one of these deadly sins sermons. How can we find freedom from, from this sin? This deadly, destructive impulse. Well, like with all the sins, that's a very difficult question. And I think with this particular sin, it might be harder to answer than any of the, of the other, other ones because pride is so deeply rooted in us. And when we're prideful, sometimes we don't even realize it. It's such a powerful stronghold. But the Apostle Paul has a really great suggestion for how to break free from pride. He tells us, imitate Jesus' example. Imitate Jesus' example. Uh, if we go back to Philippians 2, and we look at what Paul says immediately after encouraging us to look after each other's interests, he says this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, before you say, oh, well, does that mean that I'm supposed to think I'm God incarnate? Uh, listen to what he says next. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, what Paul is saying here is, hey, prideful people, think about Jesus here. Jesus was and is God, second person of the Trinity. He's in very nature God, and yet he allowed himself to take on the form of a human being. That is radically and astonishingly humble. And it's so appropriate that we're talking about this right around Christmas. I didn't plan this out, but it's perfect. Uh, because Christmas is a special time when we remember the radical humility of God. Because at Christmas, we remember not only did this, the Son of God become a human being, he even humbled himself so far as to become a baby, right? And I guess that means he even humbled himself so far as to become a fetus. That's amazing. You know, this time of year, we see the nativity scenes everywhere, right? And maybe we see them every Christmas so we get used to them. But I want to encourage us this year especially, when we look at the nativity scene, to remember that is the human incarnation of the creator of the universe in that manger there. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus existed before the world was made, 
and that through him everything was made that his has been made. He is the, the uncreated author and sustainer of the universe, all things visible and invisible. More powerful than anything or anyone. Heck, he's the reason that power exists at all. And yet in the nativity, we see God, the Almighty One, unable to walk or crawl. We see the one who spoke creation into existence, unable to speak anything. We see God, the only truly self-sufficient being, the only, the only one who isn't dependent on anything, dependent on a mother and father for food and for shelter. We see God, the one who is deserving of the highest possible honor, laid in a feeding trough for animals. We see God, the transcendent, all-powerful spirit, needing someone to change his diaper. That is radical humility. That's insane. That should fill us with awe. You know, if the Son of God was prideful the way that many of us human beings are prideful, he would have said, become a human being, be born as a baby, and die on a cross? I can't do that. I'm better than that. You know, and besides, I don't want to associate that closely with those smelly, sinful human beings. I'm holy. I'm righteous. They're not. You know, I don't, I don't want to hang out with those people. I like to keep my distance from the human masses. You know, it's good to have some separation there. And living a human life, dying on a cross for the sins of humanity, that sounds very unpleasant. You know, I'd rather take care of myself than take care of them. But of course, the Son of God doesn't say that, right? Instead, he radically humbles himself even though, unlike us, he is the center of the universe, right? He is superior. God can't have a superiority complex. He, he is really superior to everything and everyone. He really does deserve glory and honor. So if this is what God did here, if this is how much he's willing to humble himself, how much more should we be willing to let go of our pride? You know, the Son of God descended from the highest of heights, heavenly glory, to the lowest of lows, a feeding trough for animals. So why should we humans ever refuse to descend a socioeconomic class, you know, to hang out with somebody who's different from us, or somebody that society has deemed lesser than us? You know, if we're trying to imitate Jesus, that should never happen. So the key to humility is recognizing the humility of God and imitating it. So if you want to write something down underneath, how do we find freedom? Recognize the humility of God and imitate that. But in closing, I also want us to recognize that there's a second key to humility, which is realizing that God needed to do this in order to save me. Not just humanity in general, but me. You know, the whole reason that the Son of God humbles himself this much to, to be born as a baby like this 
is because it's the only way to save you or save me from my sins. The only way to bridge the gap of separation between God and me is for God to do this. The, the only way that, that that gap of separation can be bridged is for God to descend from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. That should wreck our superiority complexes. Because we are all sinners. We are all in need of grace. And it's only because of this radical humility of God that we can be saved, that we can be rescued from our condition. So my prayer is that that truth would humble us this morning and throughout this Christmas season and beyond. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is so hard for us uh, not to want to be at the center of the universe. Uh, it's hard for us uh, not to try to make ourselves our own gods. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand and recognize the joy and humility, uh, the joy in seeing ourselves for who we really are. We are, we are sinners in need of grace, but we are also people that you love uh, to a degree that we can't even understand. Lord, I pray that when we are prideful, we would remember the radical humility that you have demonstrated uh, through the baby in Bethlehem and, of course, through the cross on Calvary. Lord, I pray that we would imitate that humility, and I pray that we would be humbled by the fact that you needed to demonstrate that humility in order to rescue us. We give you thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now's the point in our service where we continue our worship through the giving of tithes and offerings and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. If you have an offering that you'd like to give, we ask that you place it in the basket underneath the communion table, uh, either here or at the communion table. Oh, I guess the communion table at the, on the side is... Oh, it's all the way back there. Okay. Communion table in the back, not on the side. Um, uh, yes, we uh, encourage you to place any offerings in there. Uh, we also encourage you to place your connection cards in there uh, so we know that you are worshiping with us. And if you have any prayer requests, again, please write them on the back of those cards. We have a team that prays over those faithfully every week. Here at St. Paul's, the communion table is open to anybody who professes faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, you don't have to be a member here. Uh, also, if you would like to receive prayer during the communion time, uh, there will be a minister uh, in the back of the room to pray with you. Before we take communion this week, I thought it might be helpful for us to remember several things and do a very quick review of where we've been uh, during this series. Now, I encourage us all to memorize Hebrews 12.1, but I probably should have told you to memorize verse 2 as well. Uh, the whole time I've kind of been holding back verse 2 because I wanted to bring it up at the very end. Uh, but if you don't know it, immediately after we're told to throw off the sin that so easily entangles, make this effort to throw off the sin, Paul says, or I'm sorry, the author of Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, during each one of these sermons, I have tried to give us reasons or, or, or given us advice for how to turn from, from these sins. And I think, reflecting on the sermons, that I stand by what I've said. But the thing we have to remember the most when it comes to our project of throwing off our sin is this advice here. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You know, what happens sometimes if people get too focused on uh, thinking about their own sin and perfecting themselves is that you start to think, man, how can I ever know that I'm actually saved? I mean, I still struggle with pride. I still struggle with anger, with, with all the seven deadly sins to some extent most people struggle with, right, whether they're Christians or not. You have to take your eyes off of yourself and your own strength and your own power and fix your eyes on Jesus, right, because he is the one who has paid the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. He is both the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith, which means you don't just start with Jesus and then do the rest on your own. You start with Jesus and you end with Jesus, and all the in-between part is through Jesus as well. He is the one that gives us the strength to grow. He is the one who empowers us. Uh, he is the one who gives us grace through the whole process uh, to mature and to throw off this sin that so easily entangles. And what we celebrate at communion is that he has already paid the price for all of our sins that we struggle with. And so to reflect that, uh, I wanted to take the cross here, which we always have either at left or right stage, and put it in the center. Sorry, worship team. <laughs> and do a quick review of where we've been. Uh, Keith, why don't you t put up these ones? So, seven deadly sins that we've talked about. First one, envy. Hopefully you guys can see that. That envy we defined as the impulse to hate those who have things we want. So... Um, I'll take these, okay. We didn't coordinate this in advance, if you can't tell. So, <laughs> so yeah, envy. And, uh, yeah, I'll put this up too. The impulse to hate those who have things we want. And then we did wrath, which is the impulse to be controlled by our anger. And then, does anyone remember what we did next? Sloth, I heard it. Okay. Which is the impulse to not care about things that matter. Then we had gluttony. which is the impulse to immoderation. Not just with food and drink, but with, with anything. If we 
don't uh, handle it in a moderate way. Uh, and then we have lust, which John Vampatella spoke on, and uh, I'm going to define as the impulse to be controlled by our sexual urges. We have greed, which we talked about last week, which is the impulse to overvalue the possession of wealth and material things. I think it's very appropriate that the dollar bill is over the guy's eyes, right? Because we talked about how greed is a spiritually blinding force that keeps us from seeing things as they really are. And then today's pride which is the impulse to consider ourselves more valuable than others. And what I encourage us to do as we come and receive communion and we approach this cross is to see all of our envy, wrath, sloth, gluttony, lust, greed, pride nailed to the cross. Jesus took care of it. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, and it's only by his grace that the gap of separation is bridged. And the reason that gap of separation is bridged is because of the radical humility of God and his love for us. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death until he comes again. So as you feel called and as you feel led, come and receive God's holy gifts for God's holy people.